Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 87 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And today we're actually going to start with a review that came in a while back. And it says, fabulously informative, five stars, great variety of guests who share their wealth of knowledge in anything keto and beyond. Jackie and Louise ask the right questions to their guests to share their experiences. Highly recommended, five stars, ladies. And this was from Alby or A-A-L-B-Y 176 from Australia. So thank you, um, Alby 176, for sharing your review with us. Today, I'm still um, on holiday and trying to find a quiet moment to record this intro. This couple of weeks, I am... I want to say mostly off plan, but not totally off plan, if that makes sense. So I'm still trying not to eat in the mornings. Um, lunchtime has quite often been salad with some sort of protein. Quite often, if there's some meat left over from our dinner, I ask for a doggy bag and then take it home. And in fact, today I had suckling pig, which was left over from two nights ago. And I had some yesterday and I've got some today and... I would still have some left over for tomorrow because um, both my mum and I had the suckling pig. So there was plenty left. But I have been eating some things off plan, um, some bread and some watermelon thing. Oh, and I think most quite a few days I've had ice cream. And one of the things I was going to mention in our newsletter is Five years ago, I would have had, we were we're here for two weeks, 14 nights, I would have had two croissants with thick butter and jam every single morning. So that would have been 28 croissants in, in the two weeks. And so far, we've been here 10 days and I've had one croissant for breakfast. So I did have one croissant one day. So you can see the difference in what you know, how things were to how they are now. And I've been quite surprised at how much food I've actually been eating. It's very easy to just keep eating. So I'm actually, while I'm enjoying myself and having a nice time and, you know, we've been having some wine with with dinner, I am actually looking forward to getting home and getting back on plan and just going back to eating twice a day and much smaller meals because here we're having starters, main course and a dessert. 
So it's it's quite a lot of food and eating quite late. I've found that a bit of a challenge as well. Anyway, so today I'm interviewing Vanessa Spina and Vanessa was recommended to me by Lisa Bailey quite a while back and Martina Schlaverova, but Vanessa had just had recently had a baby. So I waited a while because I know how hectic life can be with a newborn and that she's running a podcast and a business. So while we're recording this interview, Vanessa's partner had taken baby for a walk while we were talking. So it was nice and quiet. And let me share a bit about Vanessa with you. Vanessa Spina, a sport nutrition specialist, SNS, creator of the Tone device, a biomedical science student of U of T, which I'm assuming to be University of Texas, and the best-selling author of Keto Essentials. She's an international speaker, host of the popular Optimal Protein Fast Keto podcast, and founder of Ketogenic Girl with an online audience of over half a million. So let's go and listen to the interview with Vanessa. Welcome, Vanessa, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Oh, it's fabulous to be here. I'm sure your guests say that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And we always ask our first question is always, where in the world are you? I'm currently in Prague in the Czech Republic. Lovely, beautiful city. I loved it there. Yes, yes. And I know know Louise went there when she was in, Louise, um, my co-host, when she was in the UK, she went off to Prague for some time, a few days as well. Beautiful. It's it's a stunning city. And I love their lager, but I can't drink it anymore. (laughs) Right, I know. I was like being surrounded, you know, by the world's best, most amazing beer constantly. And um, yeah, I can't have a drop of it. So. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be very frustrating. Yeah. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about your journey, how you got to where you are, how did you find keto and where you are on that journey now? Sure. I'd love to. So I first, first, first found out about keto actually when I was doing intermittent fasting, uh, I read this amazing book by Ori Hoffelmaker, which is all about, he wrote this book called the warrior diet, which is just eating once a day, having one meal a day. And I started that, it was like 2015, 20, around 2014, 2015. And I finally got some great results. And I had been looking into gluten because I found out I had a gluten intolerance and that kind of led me to keto and keto and intermittent fasting are so perfectly matched because, you know, you, they sort of have this positive feedback loop with each other and help each other out. The more you can intermittent fast, the more keto adapted you become, the more keto adapted you become, the more you intermittent fast, uh, and combining the two, which was, you know, the intermittent fasting And this new macronutrient approach really got me results. And I got really excited about it. And I wanted to learn everything about it. And I started having amazing health improvements myself. I had struggled with being over fat in my body for a really long time. And I went to see a lot of doctors and they were like, no, you're fine. You look great. Your BMI is perfect. You know, stop worrying. But I just didn't feel good in my body. 
I didn't feel body confident. I didn't feel good in my clothing. And I went to get a body scan done and I found out that I was almost 40% body fat and the scan tech thought there was an error because I'm one of those people who carries my weight well, but also on the outside, you know, I didn't look that overweight and he was like, oh, there must be an error. And, uh, you know, it wasn't an error. That's, you know, what was happening. And I realized like I was really under muscled and over fat from being following this plant-based lifestyle and high carb lifestyle for so many years. And my health had just declined along with that. And so, you know, keto was a revolution for me because the intermittent fasting and the keto combined helped me to lose a lot of fat in four years. I got down from, it was about 38% body fat. I got down to 34, but I felt really good. And then that's when I made a big shift to doing modified keto, which is a higher protein approach to keto shifted my macros. And that's when things just really accelerated for me. And I got down to 21% body fat in two years. So it was like massive change, three times a change in half the time. And, uh, that's what I've sort of talk about promote travel, speak about, um, tell strangers on the elevator and the airplane <laughs> about, because I'm so even if I don't want to know, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Don't get stuck in an Uber or an elevator with me because, uh, you know, I'll be preaching to you, uh, how keto's changed my life and intermittent fasting. Um, but I found that there's keto kind of has this identity crisis, uh, and there's a lot of different approaches to it. I found one specifically that works really well for me and for a lot of other people. And so that's what I spend most of my time like talking about and sharing about is this mm -hmm. modified keto approach. Yeah. So tell us how the modified keto approach is different to maybe other keto approaches that people might have heard of. So it originally came about because researchers were trying to see if they could modify the traditional ketogenic diet to be a little bit more like practical and doable for families who have children with epilepsy or adults who have epilepsy. And they did some changes to the macros and they changed the traditional macros from about 85 to 90% fat down to 60% fat change the protein from about 15% to 30, and then the carb from five to 10%. And they found that the, in their studies and the research that the modified keto approach had the same benefits in terms of seizure control, latency, the seizure, and a number of other benefits. So uh, a lot more, you know, long-term compliance, a lot more ease, practicality for people to do the diet at that approach. And so there's a lot of people who do this modified approach, um, like Dr. Dom D'Agostino, who's one of the world's you know top ketone scientists. He's been doing this modified keto approach. A lot of men who are athletic and bodybuilders, they tend to do this higher protein approach, but the women don't. The <laughs> women uh, really go low on the protein. Um, you know, I think they're taught to look for really high blood ketones, which I know we're going to talk about later. And you know, they really restrict the protein back and do the really, really high fat. And first, you know, to first starting, I think it's a great way to shift and transition off of a Western diet because you are getting into ketosis that way. But if your goals are not therapeutic ketosis, they're more body recomposition, you know, losing body fat, gaining more muscle then the modified keto approach with the higher protein. Um, I found to be a lot more effective for that. And you can, 
sort of have these two dual goals being reached, which on the one side is the improved metabolic health from body recomposition, but you can also have the benefits of ketosis, which have a lot of, you know, positive uh, impact on our longevity, anti-inflammation, epigenetics, there's, you know, autophagy, there's all these wonderful benefits we get from ketosis. So you can kind of hit both goals. Um, similarly to how the traditional keto and the modified keto both accomplish the same thing. So that's sort of the, the main difference in the macros is that 30% protein, 60% fat, and then, um, around 10% carb. Okay. Cause when I started, they were talking about 75% fat, 20 protein and 5% carbs. So that's sort of shifted a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not yeah, as high I as mean, the therapeutic so, approach of being 80 or 90%. Right. So it's lower fat, but yeah, it depends where, you know, who you learn it from. <laughs> like there's just so many different variations, but that's sort of the, the technical definition and in, in the research between the traditional and the, the modified approach. So do you track your macros all the time? Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I recently just recommitted myself to doing that because Um, you know, over time, I think in my head, I'm like, ah, I know exactly what my macros are. I know exactly what everything is because I eat a lot of the same things, but, uh, things do change and shift. And I noticed, you know, I tend to change things up seasonally as well. So in the fall and winter, I gravitate towards a more carnivorous, like very, very low carb, Uh, approach. And what I like about that is with carnivore, I can do a little bit higher protein because my carbs are zero. And I just like to eat that way, especially in the fall and winter. Also, you know, just the majority of the time, I just really like protein. And in the summer, I like to bring in like more salads and I like to eat more locally, go to the farmer's market, do that kind of thing in the spring and summer. So I'm bringing more carbs back in. I have to moderate my protein a little bit down from when it's carnivore or else I won't be able to stay in ketosis. So that's a goal for me. And I think tracking is really important anytime you're making a change, but also anytime you're moving towards a goal and you know you want to make sure that what you're doing is going to get you there. And it's, it's really important, I think, to, to track and make sure that, that you are there because sometimes you think it's a certain thing and then you actually log it all and it's not what you thought. Um, and yeah, it's really helpful to do that. Okay. So I want to talk about this because I really mm-hmm. struggle with um, logging everything and counting. You, you can do it in the, in the apps. That's fine, but it's, on a practical day-to-day basis, how are you knowing what you, are you weighing everything, every single meal and then logging it? How do you do that? And and then the other question I'm going to tack on the end, which I hate doing, but I will, is what (laughs) about foods when it's um, somebody's, somebody's making it for you and it's a mixed pot, like a vegetable and um, chicken curry, for example, and there's all different Mm -hmm. things going in. How do you cope with that? Uh, Well, for the first part of the question, what I find really helpful and, you know, a lot of people, I think just probably do this naturally is I repeat a lot of the same meals. So I figure out my macros for different meals and I use my fitness pal. I know there's a lot of different ones out there, but I like it because I can scan like labels and I'm used to it. And I've put in a lot of my meals in there. So I put in all the ingredients for meals that I will repeat on a weekly basis. And then when I track, 
at the end of the day, I can just put in my, that's my breakfast meal that I usually have. And it's got all the macros already done in there. That's, and I just go to meals and I just add which meals I had. So I kind of have like seven, you know, say lunches, seven dinners, seven breakfasts that I'll do regularly. And that saves me a lot of time. And I just add it in, but also once you figure out those meals and how they fit together in a day, you don't have to track as much. Cause you know what, yeah. what you're having, yeah. you know, for the most part, uh, when it comes to, you know, if you're eating something different every day, then that's, it's not going to work as well. Um, and then when it comes to eating out and eating what other people make for you, I think it's just guesstimating <laughs> as best as you can, um, and not stressing about it too much, you know, and I just have certain guidelines in my head. So I know, you know, things make it easier for me if I'm eating at, you know, other people's homes. If I just eat carnivore, for example, then I know I'm not going to overdo the carbs, you know, and, and you start to figure out which foods have what, so you can kind of guesstimate, you know, those kinds of things, but, you know, bringing, like, if I'm going to a party, I, I tend to bring things too. Um, I'm just one of those people, like I bring deviled eggs or I bring things that, um, I like to eat and that other people do too. So keto foods are pretty delicious. So it's, it's easy to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I will, if I'm going to a party, I went to a party a couple of weeks ago and I just ate before I went so that I didn't have to worry about what the food was. And actually it was, was all, gonna, it was all was stuff say I that I all can't eat. Yeah. yeah. It was all stuff I couldn't I eat. Just pre-eat. And I used to find that silly when I heard other people say it. And then I'm like, well, why don't I just eat the food that I like, you know? And then when I go to an event, I can actually focus on connecting with people instead of being like, oh, you know, what do you have over here? And focusing on the food, I just focus on the connection. And if I've eaten like a high protein meal, I don't feel hungry. I don't even notice the food. I just focus on the people. And that for me is a more like satisfying experience too. Yeah. Yeah. And I find that if I've eaten before, I know I'm not going to be hungry because I yes. will eat at a time when I normally eat more or less, maybe a bit before I know I can easily get through to the next day. And then mm -hmm. if, um, if there's something there that I can eat salads or cheese, and I feel like I want to be sociable with everyone else, then I can have that. And if it's not there, yes. I don't have to worry about it. Exactly. Exactly. And it, it's something you just, just tend to, I guess, start doing over the years more naturally. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's even just like having a yogurt or like, if you don't have time to have a whole meal, just have something. Um, and it means that you won't, you know, fall prey to some kind of like really carby, uh, appetizer or something. If like you go there super hungry and there's no options for you and that's, that's no fun for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. So also I just have to say, it makes you less of a pain, like as a guest to, I hate going over to people's places and being like, oh, I can't have that. I can't, you know, and, and making yourself like that kind of person and you just take care of yourself. You're a better guest in the end. Yeah, true. Very true. <laughs> so, um, where are we going to go now? Because there's so many different places we could go. Um, so yes, you track all the time. Can we, can we just sort of back up because you recently had we you recently had a baby mm -hmm. um, last year um so did you stay keto throughout the pregnancy how was that 
Yeah. So for years, I wondered how that was going to go because I've seen so many girlfriends of mine who are in this community and they were like, I had to eat carbs. Like I couldn't get through the first trimester. Um, you know, so I was just like really curious, like what's going to happen. Am I going to have cravings, et cetera. And so when I was in the like conception period, fertility period, you know, I was doing like really ketogenic, traditional ketogenic carnivore, like super high fat. Uh, like at least I was doing at least 80%, uh, because I, I wanted the therapeutic benefits of it. So, uh, you know, it's just so many egg yolks, butter, tons of like ribeye steak burgers, uh, lots of lamb, like just really fatty meats and lots of eggs and butter and, uh, and cream and all of that. So when I got pregnant, I was still kind of like eating that way. And so I stayed carnivore, but I wasn't like eating just so much fat as aggressively. Uh, but I stayed carnivore. I went back to more of like my higher protein because I'm like, well, this is a time of growth. Yeah. I'm growing a whole other human and humans are made of protein. So, you know, I'm going to eat lots of protein. So I did a high protein, you know, carnivore until I got to about halfway through the second trimester and we went home uh, to visit family. And my family is amazing. My husband's family makes um, keto food for me all the time. So they had all these keto meals made for me. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to, you know, pass this up. So I started eating more keto and I just kind of kept that up for the rest of the pregnancy after that, because it was like giving me a little bit more variety. And then again, we're going into spring and summer, which is what I do naturally then anyway. Um, But I had an extremely smooth pregnancy, uh, very quick to, like conception time as well. And I didn't have a single negative pregnancy symptom. I didn't have swelling. I didn't have nausea. I didn't have like anything. Every time I would go see my doctor, he's like, your feet and legs are not swollen. Like what is happening? Um, and you know, just, I didn't, ha- I just felt like I do normally, but you know, obviously carrying a lot of weight <laughs> in, my, in my stomach. Um, so it, it was a really wonderful pregnancy. And the only cr- weird things that I had is I had like a bit of an aversion to beef, which I've seen happen. Um, I just, it wasn't so much that I had to leave the room or anything, which I've heard from other women, like they can't be in the room when it's mm. even being cooked. It's just when I ate it, it didn't taste good. So I was just craving chicken. And so I was making like chicken fajitas every day. I'm like, I guess, you know, this is what my body wants. Maybe it was those particular amino acids in chicken that are higher. I don't know what it was, but you know, um, we love fajitas. So we just made it every day. And that was the only sort of unusual thing. Yeah. And, and did the birth go smoothly? It, the birth was the only part that was not as smooth as the rest. Uh, he was really late and I was stressed because, you know, the doctor's were telling me that, you know, they wanted to get him out. They wanted to, you know, do a C-section. And I was like, no, I want, I have this vision of, you know, this beautiful (laughs) standard vaginal birth. I don't want to do a C-section. And then in the end, we ended up, I ended up being induced and then having a C-section and it actually was the best thing. Um, 
because it was the best thing for him. It got him out, you know, safely and quickly. But, um, for me, I think if we, if we were to get pregnant again, I would not be so against the C-section like I was because it was actually amazing. And our doctor was incredible. And, and, um, yeah, so it was still like the best day uh, of my life and everything. It just wasn't how I envisioned it. And I know that happens for, you know, Lots a of lot of women. Yeah. And so now that he must be eating now, cause he's nine months mm-hmm. old, mm-hmm. what are you feeding him? So we do baby led weaning. So we just let him eat whatever he wants from what we're eating. And, um, I have added though a little bit more like fruit and more vegetables for him because it's just not something that we eat a lot of. So just wanting to expose him to a lot of different things. Um, but for the most part, he loves meat. His first food was uh, turkey liver that I had fried up. Uh, he loves liver and it's a great texture because like for his little teeth, you know, it's very soft. soft. Um, so he, he doesn't have to like chew it apart, like steak or something like that. I just cut that up into like really small pieces and he loves like avocado he loves egg, you know, just all the really nutrient dense foods, but it's really amazing to see him just like really enjoy, you know, liver. I mean, it is really tasty, so it's not, um, but I just do the poultry livers. I did. I don't really do the beef. I don't know if he would like that, um, as much, but he's, he loves berries. Uh, we always do like blueberries or, you know, blackberries or strawberries at the end of dinner. And he just, he just loves it. So it's, it's really adorable. Yeah. So for in terms of getting enough protein, because we know that protein is really important. And especially as we get older, as you hit 50, you start losing a lot of muscle muscle mass. So how how can older women get enough protein? And do you find that? I mean, I, I've seen it that people just don't want to eat that much protein. How can they mm-hmm. up, how can they up their protein? I've just done it yeah, again so, and asked you several questions in one go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll try to re- see if I remember them all, but um, the recommendations that I personally have for people with protein are about one gram of protein per pound of optimal body weight. So not necessarily current body weight, but you know, your optimal body weight, if you're active and, or doing any exercise. And if you're more sedentary and you don't do any resistance training, then like 0.8 times, you know, the number of your optimal body weight is a little bit better because you don't really need as much protein if you are not using it with resistance training. Um, But for the most part, I like women to get at least a hundred grams and not go below that. And I'm a big fan of protein shakes. Like whey protein is really high in leucine, which is the amino acid. It's a ketogenic amino acid that helps us to trigger muscle protein synthesis, which avoids, you know, excessive muscle protein breakdown, which is happening every day. Um, and it's really, really important to prioritize that. And I prefer people get too much protein than not enough. Like it's way better to go over on the protein than, than to not hit your target. So, uh, protein for me is like a free food for anyone. Like just eat as if it's a lean protein, eat as much as you want, um, until you're full. And it is the macronutrient that gives you the most satiety, but also has a thermic effect of protein. So it helps your body burn more calories by triggering this synthesis of new muscle. 
and it's, yeah, it's just my favorite <laughs> macro. So, um, I think getting, you know, some of those ranges numbers, if we're talking about KG, so it's uh, 1.6 grams per kilogram. Uh, if you are not as active up to 2.2 grams per kilogram, if you are doing, you know, resistance training and weight training. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's based on the top research done by uh, protein scientists. So yeah, you can never get enough pro you, you can't overdo. So you, you sometimes talk about um, people worrying about too much protein, knocking you out of mm -hmm. ketosis, but that isn't necessarily true. Is it? It depends on what your goal is. I mean, if you like, there are times in my life where I am just optimizing for, you know, having more muscle, burning more fat in that time. I really think like you cannot overeat protein because, you know, you want to build muscle. You have to remember you need protein for everything in your body, your skin, hair, and nails, but also even your hormones, your neurotransmitters. So we have a, such a huge demand for protein because our bodies are protein outside of fat and water. Um, so if your goal is like your main goal and you only have one goal is building muscle, then you can't overdo protein in my opinion. And there's research showing the safety, you know, it has, there's no harmful effects on the kidneys or anything else. You know, we excrete what we don't need, or we can oxidize excess protein and burn it for fuel. But if you have a dual goal, like I do right now of also optimizing for being in ketosis and getting all those like anti-aging benefits, anti-inflammatory benefits, then that's why I prefer the modified keto, which is that 30%. Mm -hmm. So if you want to stay in ketosis, then you, you can overdo on the protein because carbs have the biggest effect on kicking you out of ketosis. Um, because when you eat carbs, insulin goes up when you eat protein, insulin goes up, but glucagon goes up as well. And that helps us to deplete the glycogen in the liver and get us into ketosis, but you can eat so much protein that your body will never run out of the precursors. It needs to start making ketone body. So you, I think you can, if your goal, if you have dual goals, you know, it's, you want to be more looking at that like 30% and testing, you know, that's, what's, you know, what I'm really, really passionate about is we have tools that can give us feedback and let us know. So you can find your individual carb threshold, your individual protein threshold. You know, if you're carnivore, you're more just looking at the protein, but if you're keto, you can find which levels of carb and protein together will keep you in ketosis and which will, you know, kick you out. Mm, yeah. Just going back to the key, the whey protein shakes, mm -hmm. are, there, are there different types of whey protein? So if you go and yes. look in a shop, there's all different, I don't know, makes brands, but yes. are they all different as well? And yes, is there I've a done, better one? I've done a couple of episodes, uh, just on finding the best whey protein. And I have some graphics as well on my Instagram, uh, which can be helpful if you're like a visual person, uh, which is that ketogenic girl, but basically you want to get a high quality whey protein, whey protein isolate is my favorite. And when you look at the back, you would like to see that per serving, you're getting somewhere about 10% of it should be the amino acid leucine. So if the serving size is 30 grams, then you would want to have about somewhere around three grams 
of that being leucine. And leucine is that amino acid. It's one of the BCAAs, a branch chain amino acids. that's going to help trigger muscle protein synthesis. And sometimes like people will try different kinds of protein powders. Um, and they'll not realize that the leucine is not high enough to trigger muscle protein synthesis. So it's really important that it be at least 10%. And if you turn it around and it shows you the amino acid profile, that's a good indicator that it's higher quality because they're paying attention to that and they're showing you what's in it. Um, so that's then the second thing to look at is the ingredients. And, you know, if you are buying a whey protein isolate, make sure that the first ingredient is whey protein isolate, because sometimes you turn it around and it's concentrate or it's like collagen. And then the second ingredient is the whey protein isolate. So, which it's listed in order descending order of what's in it. So the, if you're buying an isolate, you want it to be isolate. If you're buying a concentrate, which is a little bit cheaper then you know, you're, and there's nothing wrong at all with concentrate actually Sean Wells, who I had on the podcast says he prefers that, but if you're buying concentrate, it should be a little bit uh, cheaper than the isolate and the price should reflect that as mm -hmm. well. So that's important to know. Yeah. And so when you make a shake, what, what do you put in yours? So I like to do just a scoop of whey protein. If I'm doing uh, egg protein, I do a scoop and a half or two scoops because it's the leucine is higher in the way. And I just put unsweetened almond milk ice. Uh, I do a cup of frozen berries or just no berries. And then if I don't do berries, then I'll put some vanilla powder in it, uh, vanilla flavoring and a little bit of salt and stevia. And that just makes it, um, really delicious. Nice. Okay. I have to give that a go. I've definitely got mm -hmm. to, I think I've got to, I think I eat quite a lot of protein, but I think I probably need to eat more. Um, so let's talk about ketones because you've been looking into the different types of ketones and then perhaps we'll move on to your tone machine. Sure. So I think it's really important to understand, you know, the different ways that ketones are made in the body. So, you know, if you are making ketones because you are like fasting, you're in a caloric deficit, you're doing intermittent fasting, anything that would sort of get you to lose weight, then the ketones that you're seeing are going to be coming from your stored body fat. So they come from your fat cells, they go to the liver, and then the liver makes the primary ketone, which is called acetoacetate. And then it either burns that for fuel, or it then turns it into BHB, which is what people see when they test the blood. So unfortunately, when we test the blood, we we can't measure acetoacetate. We can only measure BHB and it turns it into BHB to stabilize it so that it doesn't degrade. So it's, and it also adds another electron in there. So it's like this little package sort of storage version of ketone. And so when people are testing the blood, they're seeing the BHB, but they have no idea what the acetoacetate is and they have no idea how much they're actually using. So this has been something that has perturbed me for years. And I wanted to find a way to measure the usage better. And that's how I found acetone measuring. So acetone is the third ketone. And what happens is as the acetoacetate, the liver cannot directly sort of oxidize those ketones. So they have to go out into the blood and then they go to various tissues. And once they go into the tissues, they're then oxidized in the mitochondria of that tissue. But as they're being sort of transferred around and used, 
20% of it degrades into acetone and acetone is so tiny that it actually diffuses through our lungs. And that's why we can measure it on our breath. And so, you know, if you're testing blood ketones, because you're doing a therapeutic approach to keto, then it, that's great. You know, you're seeing that your body is making those therapeutic levels, which above 1.0 millimolar on the blood means you're getting the autophagy, the anti-inflammation, you know, the signaling effects, the anti-aging, all of those wonderful benefits. Um, but if you are also doing it or just doing it for fat loss, you, when you measure the breath is when you can see your actual fat burning because your acetone is coming right from your fat cells. So you're literally like reading, you're breathing out your fat and you're able to see, you know, how much is, is coming out. Uh, so it's, I think it's really important to understand those three. And so when people do the urine test strips, they're testing acetoacetate. So when you first go into ketosis, your body is not keto adapted. So it dumps a lot of the acetoacetate through the urine. And that's why you can test it and you can see like, oh, I'm in ketosis. But as soon as your body starts adapting, it starts upregulating all these processes. It starts using the acetoacetate and it stops dumping it and excreting it. So yep. that's why the urine test strips, you know, are not effective for long-term use. And BHB, like I said, is variable, but breath never drops off. So they've done like Verda did one study where they tracked people for a year and their blood ketones started at like 0.17. They went up to about 0.6, but after a year they went down to about yep. 0.3. So people who are keto adapted, they upregulate a lot of processes to start using the ketones more. And you just don't see it as much in the blood, but you will always see it in the breath because as you are using them for fuel, you're breathing it out. And that to me is just so fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I've been keto now for five years mm -hmm. um, um, and my blood ketones sort of average around 0.3 or 0.4, mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. quite low. That's quite normal, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And it doesn't mean you're not in ketosis. Um, but if you check the breath and the breath is high, then you are in ketosis. If you check the breath and the breath is low, then you may not be, but, um, you've just upregulated all of these different pathways and transporters to use that BHB and your body has also different ratios of BHB to acetoacetate that it makes depending on like your overall energy status. So, um, like if someone is eating a lot of calories and also taking a lot of exogenous ketones, they will make a lot of BHB because there's so much energy already in your blood. You'll have low levels of NAD to NADH. And so you, you just don't make, you don't, you don't make the acetoacetate. You just make all this BHB, which is not a good thing. And actually new research now is showing that high levels of BHB can be actually very bad for us. Um, and it makes sense because it's, you just have too much energy, um, yeah. happening, but, uh, your point was, yes, you, you could be showing 0.3 and be still in ketosis. Um, and that's a frustrating experience for a lot of people because they're like, I'm doing keto, but like my blood ketones are super low, Yeah, but it's actually but a sign that you're using them. Mine will only go really high if I fast for two or three days. Yes. Yeah. That's pretty common. Um, but sometimes people will see that 
you know, they'll still have high breath acetone because they are fat burners. Um, but the body is just always adapting to whatever we're doing. So they, they just won't see that high BHB. So it's probably good to do both the breath and the blood measure. Both. That's what I've been doing for the past two weeks. Um, because I did that before. And then after a while, you know, everyone has a different baseline as well. So I figured out what my breath numbers look like when I'm deep in ketosis. And then I stopped testing with the blood. And I also stopped testing my blood glucose because blood glucose and breath acetone are very highly correlated. And so when acetone is high breath, blood glucose is low. So every time I would check my acetone was high, my blood glucose was low. And so I just stopped pricking my finger, but now for the past two weeks, I've started testing again, um, to see what my personal sort of ratios are. And, um, there's a few things that I did that actually got my ketones, my blood ketones and my breath up higher. And that was, uh, cleaning up my intermittent fast. So, you know, just going back to like water, plain tea or coffee in the fasted window, closing my eating window a little bit earlier in the day, like instead of seven or eight, more around five o'clock and, you know, just going back to that, like clean fast, it helped my ketones go. I saw a change. Um, if I keep doing that, my blood will go down, but the breath will stay high because the, that's always going to be happening. Um, but it's, it's really fascinating to test both. Yeah. So talk to us about the tone machine. Yeah. So this is the tone device, which I launched in December and, um, it is a breath acetone meter. So I'll show you how it works, but it has a 20 second countdown. So you just turn it on and wait 20 seconds. And then you breathe into it for about five, six seconds. And if it registers a tone or a beep, then it's reading the breath acetone and it'll let you know, your results. So I'll show you. Here. Do you have to breathe in a special way? Cause some, I mean, some of the older models, Vanessa's doing this now she's blowing. <laughs> so you can see there um, it's 35. Yeah. That's good. And because yeah, so that's, that's quite high. So I'm fasted right now and I've been doing some experiments in the last couple of weeks. And I found that my baseline doing this like modified higher protein keto was around like anywhere from 21, 22 to 25. That's like where I stayed. And the body is keeping all these things in very tight ranges. So I was like in that range. And then when I started going, I stopped doing my huge cashew milk lattes <laughs> in the morning. Um, and I closed my eating window a bit earlier. Then I started to see like 26, 27, 28, and it was trending higher and my blood ketones were as well because you're like changing things up. So the body is now like readjusting. And so yesterday I tested, and I know this is a question that you have as well, a protein sparing modified fast day. And I've had the highest ketones since like last night. So there's, there's a delay with the breath acetone behind the blood. Um, so whenever you do a fast or you do any kind of fat burning, the breath acetone is a little bit delayed from the peak, um, of the blood. So people will do like a 24 hour fast and then they still see their breath acetone, like taking off, you know, for the whole next 48 hours. So you're upregulating all the fat burning and it's really neat to see it continue to be high. But I tested 
for the first time a protein sparing modified fast day. And that got, it started going up to like 31, 32 last night. And then this morning it's all been like 34, 35. So you can see the, you know, the fat burning was, was pretty high from doing that. And I'm, I know we're going to talk about that, um, next. So I know it's one of your your topics. Yeah. So do you want to go in, do you want to tell the listeners what a protein sparing modified fast is P P S M F. Yeah. You often often see it abbreviated. The abbreviation is harder to say than the actual like (laughs) word, which makes no sense. We need a different, you know, abbreviation for it. Um, so it's really, it has an interesting history. It was invented originally by, um, a couple of physicians at Harvard and they started using it for people who were on bed rest. They started doing these amino acid infusions to help them prevent muscle protein breakdown. Um, because, you know, bed rest, your muscle protein breakdown just goes through the roof. And then they started testing it with people who had obesity And they found that it was extremely effective and people were losing an average of 40 to 50 pounds in some of their studies. And they were not hungry the entire time. They felt great, high energy. And they actually ended up uh, completely abandoning this field, even though they discovered this because they realized that the only thing that you could do after you did a protein sparing modified fast to maintain the weight loss would be a keto diet. And they thought that this was so unhealthy, it would be unethical for them to recommend it. So they completely abandoned working in this field and still to this day will not, I think one of them has passed away at George Blackburn, but his partner will not do interviews or anything about it because like they felt like they failed, even though they invented this. And I try to give them credit wherever possible, because it's, it's really amazing, an amazing tool. So if you look at the scientific research, it's all been done mostly on preparing obese or morbidly obese individuals for uh, weight loss surgery. So it's very fast, effective way to lose weight before a surgery. Um, but people can actually incorporate like a protein sparing modified fasting day into their week. And I prefer that personally to water fasting for fat loss, because you do need to get a certain amount of amino acids every day from exogenous sources. And so if you just water fast, you will need to break down some of your amino acids, mm. you know, from muscle tissue. And that makes sense. there's a huge debate, you know, about this, like, Uh, there's people who say, well, that's just connective tissue. And we do see people who've like fasted and lost huge amounts of weight and yet they don't have any loose skin. So you definitely can be breaking down like the skin, the collagen and using that for protein. But I just prefer it. You know, if it's so hard, especially if you're over 40 to maintain muscle And people who are doing a lot of water fasting, men and women over the age of 40, they are at risk for losing muscle. So if someone wants like really, you know, to turn up the fat loss and, you know, add in a protein spraying modified fasting day, what that looks like is around 800 calories about. So the one that I did yesterday was 125 grams of protein about 30 grams of fat and about 17 grams of carbs. So, you know, higher protein, but it was about 800 calories. So it's still keto, 
because the, you know, if the calories are restricted, you can even eat a thousand calories of carbs and be keto. It's just, you know, if you're at enough caloric restriction and, you know, it definitely like upregulated the fat burning, it helps people break through stalls. And I just think it's a better alternative to water fasting because you will protect your muscle. And, you know, it, I, I know that a lot of people, um, don't want to go like very low in calories. And I'm not suggesting that people do this every day. Um, I just think it's a, it's a good replacement, like one day a week, instead of doing a water fast, you know, if that's something that, you know, you want to just like, you've been stalled for like forever and you're not seeing any progress. Um, yeah, but you don't want to, you know, obviously do it too much or too often because there are negative metabolic adaptations to, you know, taking your calories too low where your metabolism can slow. So that's why, you know, it's, it should be used like very, you know, not overused, I guess. Like, you know, there are people who are doing it every day and I, I don't think that that's, that's healthy at all. So. Mm. So when you used yesterday, you had 800 calories, what did that look like in terms of food? So I had actually, I did an OMAD, which I don't usually do because I like to maximize the number of times I can get protein in, but, uh, it just worked the best for me. Cause I've been like also testing the intermittent fasting and doing all this stuff. So, uh, I think if I were to do it again, I would also do it OMAD because it just, um, it's easier to not overdo the protein, I guess, if you, you know, you want to do it. And, um, so I had an early dinner, it was about four 30 and I had, uh, two turkey sausages, um, you know, turkey and chicken sausage are, are, you know, great for that because they're pretty, they're like 10 grams of fat each. And I had a turkey pepperoni stick. Um, and we had, I actually had some, uh, grilled turkey that I had from the day before, like leftovers that my husband and I shared. And I had, uh, some salad with it like some greens and cucumber. It was quite a lot of like a big portion, you know, of, of Turkey. And then I had two yogurts for dessert. So I think that was everything I'd have to check my, I can check what it was exactly because I was just sharing a post about that. Oh, and I had the protein bread with it. So it was like, I kind of made like a hot dog kind of thing with Maria Emmerich's protein bread. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had a loaf of the protein bread and I had mustard and made like, you know, Turkey hot dogs. And then, um, I had a bunch of strawberries for dessert. Sounds quite a lot of food. Yeah. So yogurt, two yogurts, like low fat yogurts that had about a gram each of fat and then a bunch of strawberries. I think, you know, like a, a bowl of strawberries I shared with my husband and Luca. So it was very satisfying. I had no hunger at all. You know, I felt great and I was more carb than I usually have actually, you know, because it was like 17 grams and I've been doing more of a carnivore style. So I really enjoyed the strawberries. Like it was, it was great. And my, you know, ketones were higher than they've you know been in a long time. Um, the highest I ever had them before was in this like mid 30 level. And I, that was when I did a 24 hour fast. So you know, the fat burning is the same in a way, but you're getting to eat. And, 
you're triggering muscle protein synthesis, which is very calorically intensive. So you're burning more fat on a protein spring modified fast than if you're just water fasting. And there's just so many reasons why I like it as an alternative to, to water fasting. Yeah. I like, I like the sound of that actually, because I hate fasting. I hate not eating just because I like eating. (laughs) Yeah. It's not fun. And it it causes a lot of food fixation. Like people think about food a lot and you feel deprived and I don't like it either. (laughs) Yeah. But also, you know, I'm well over 50, um, in fact, nearer to the other end. Um, And so therefore I should really be looking after my muscle um, protein and muscle. Yes. And that's something that I learned from Dr. Don Lehman, who's one of the world's top protein scientists. And, you know, he just talks a lot about how he's concerned about people fasting over 40 and, you know, losing, losing lean body mass, losing muscle, because it's just so hard to maintain it, let alone gain it. Um, And I actually also want to mention that I did my strength training workout while I was fasted and that signals muscle protein synthesis as well. So it's a good way, you know, I'm not saying that you should like always work out on a protein spring modified fast day, but some people like to work out fasted. And if you do that, you are making sure to signal muscle protein synthesis. And then we had, you know, our meal right after. So, you know, I'm definitely protecting the muscle by doing that. And I didn't do like an intense workout. It was just lifting, you know, some, some pretty, you know, standard weights and doing some push-ups and squats and, and stuff like nothing crazy. Yeah. Great. What do you think about carb cycling? So I was really not interested in like even learning about it for years. Um, but I really, with my podcast, especially try to serve this community that listens as much as possible. And the feedback I was getting from this community was we want to learn about like perimenopause, menopause and carb cycling. And I am more of a fan of it now because I understand now that it, there is a connection with the thyroid for a lot of women and with hormones. And, you know, you can make the argument that carbohydrate is a non-essential macronutrient. So we can make as much of it as we need to from other substrates, but there's really no point in doing that if you, you know, can just eat some carbs. So, um, I actually just interviewed, uh, Dr. Jay Wrigley, who specializes in women who are perimenopausal and postmenopausal. He recommends a high protein, you know, low carb diet for women in that stage, but also to carb cycle one day a week. And, you know, he said, you know, go up to hundred, 150 grams of carbs once a day, once a week, but on that day you do low fat instead of high fat. Mm. And that way you won't store the fat, um, but you will get enough carb in to sort of signal something hormonally that positively affects thyroid. And I think potentially progesterone as well. So, um, yeah, he said that that could be really helpful one day a week. And, um, one thing that I would say around that is, I've noticed that some people who are in deep ketosis for a long time, they can have this reverse uh, metabolic inflexibility, which is also called, you know, a uh, sort of physiological insulin resistance, where when they do carb up, they'll get really high blood glucose. And that's just because you're so adapted, you know, to being fat fueled that when you, if you have a big bolus of carbs that your body 
you know, it's just not prepared for that. And so you might see higher blood glucose, but I asked him about that. He said, he is not, you know, doesn't think it's something to be concerned about, but if you, I think 150 to 150 grams might be a lot like in just one day. So maybe like, you know, doing a little bit less than that and maybe like doing it a little more gradually than just (laughs) all at once, because you know what I mean? That might be, uh, like maybe have spread it out throughout the day, uh, maybe like 80 to hundred grams, you know, or maybe try with smaller amounts and see what you do. Um, like the first time you do it, do 50, 60, 70, and then your body will know, okay, once a week I get this carb up. And so I can, you know, have insulin ready for that, um, and just make more insulin for it. So Mm. it's just kind of a thought that I had when we were talking about it. Yeah. That makes sense to, to build up. One thing that you often say is about being in a caloric deficit if you want to lose weight. Mm-hmm. Isn't that detrimental to our metabolism? So the only way like, physiologically that our bodies will lose weight is if we have a deficit. And I know there are people who argue against this very passionately. And there are some unicorns out there who the more they eat, <laughs> the more they lose weight. Uh, but typically when people lose weight on keto, it is because they're eating less calories because protein and fat is so satiating. But for most people, if you are not losing weight with the amount of food that you are eating, you are in maintenance. So, you know, even if you think you're at a deficit or that you will lose weight without a deficit, Um, if you are not losing weight, it's because you're maintaining wherever you are. So, you know, it's people say, well, you know, our bodies are not bomb calorie meters. And, you know, I agree with that, but, you know, you can just change your macronutrients. You know, that's my favorite thing to do is just to increase the protein percentage and you will be more satisfied from doing that, but you will displace other calories such as that coming from fat and you will create some kind of deficit. Um, but you will also like if, if calories are equated and you have, you know, one person eating double the protein than in the other situation, uh, the person eating double the protein will still burn more fat, even if they're not necessarily at a caloric deficit on paper because of the thermic effect of protein, which is about anywhere from 20 to 30%. So 20 to 30% of the calories that you eat from protein will be lost because of triggering muscle protein synthesis. So, um, there's, those are some of the reasons why people lose weight when they say they're not in a deficit, but it's because of the macronutrients, you know, and the thermic effect that they're having. A lot of people say, well, all you have to do to lose weight is get your insulin low, you know, but if you are burning the same amount of energy that you're eating every day, then how are you going to burn the excess that you've stored? You know, it's the same thing as with like, if you have a lot of financial debt and you expect to just pay it off without saving, like you, you have to stop spending to, to, (laughs) you have to stop spending in order to pay it off. And I, you know, I, I think that it, I, I know, and I understand people feel very passionately about this, but I just want people to get results. And, um, I see a lot of people out there who are saying like, you should eat two 2,500 calories to 3000 calories a day, or you should be eating way above 2000 calories, but they're all athletes and 
they're all working out like four or five hours a day, you know, so they can eat like 25, 2,600, 2,800 calories and they can still lose weight, but you know, or maintain whatever, but they are so active. The mo- most people are not exercising even an hour a day, let alone doing like, you know, two, two trips to the gym a day or something like that. So, you know, if you want to eat that many calories and lose weight, you can, but you have to <laughs> earn it with the activity. Yeah. And I'm a sports nutrition specialist. Like I see this all the time. So, yeah, but you do have to make sure you're covering your basal metabolic rate though. Don't you? You, you, yes, you yeah. shouldn't be going so, too low. Yeah. And that's the thing is if you go too low in calories, you know, every day you will have negative metabolic adaptations in your body. Your metabolism will slow because part of your total daily energy intake or total, total daily energy expenditure or TDEE, which is your basal metabolic rate, plus your activity, plus thermic effective food, plus uh, non-exercise activity, thermogenesis all of that goes down, you know, when you eat less food. So your body will adapt. It's always adapting. Um, so I like to recommend that people take diet breaks and, you know, if you're taking the calories really low during the week, you know, make sure that you do a day or take the weekend to eat at maintenance and whatever maintenance level you want to do. And it will slow down your fat loss, but you'll still get there you'll just take a bit longer to get there. And then when you do get there, it'll be easier to maintain because you won't have, if you do like a crash diet or you're someone doing like so many protein sparing modified fast days, or you're eating, you know, really, really low calorie day after day without ever going back to maintenance, then you, you will have those negative uh, metabolic adaptations. Yeah. Fabulous. So is there anything that we haven't discussed today that you would like to bring up? I'm trying to think, um, I think we really covered all my favorite topics. We definitely got to talk about the ketones and that was something I really wanted to talk about. So yeah, I think we pretty much covered it all. Brilliant. Thank you. So tell people how they can get in contact with you and buy a tone machine if they want to and things like that. Sure. So my podcast is the optimal protein podcast and it comes out twice a week and I get to interview fabulous scientists and doctors and experts on Mondays. And on Thursdays, we kind of chat about, um, you know, some of the highlights and takeaways from that. And you can find the tone device and all of my programs at ketogenicgirl.com. And I'm also on uh, all social media at ketogenic girl and uh, the tone device is also at tone device there. So yeah, thank you so much for asking. Yeah. Thank you. And we always ask our guests to finish off with their three top tips. Yeah. So I think the, the top three things I would say, number one, set your goals and, you know, make sure to be very clear on your goals and what you want to achieve. Uh, the second thing is, you know, measuring, uh, tracking your macros. And the last thing is testing. You know, I really think testing is so important. And, you know, if you're someone that testing makes you anxious, like, don't worry about it. You don't have to test, but if you like data and, you know, you like getting feedback, I think it can be very motivating to test and, you know, figure out the things that we talked about, like figure out your carb, your protein threshold, you know, so you ultimately succeed better in the end. Mm, yeah. I think I'm going to have to get a machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would love to see, um, some fun, you know, you have some fun experimenting with it and trying it out. Yeah. Uh- 
I think I've got some changes to make after speaking to you that uh, I need to start to bring into my way of doing things. Awesome. Yeah, well, let me know how it goes. Thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. So this is the third time I'm recording this outro. The first one didn't come out very well. The second one, people were banging around in the kitchen um, and the, the my microphone was picking that up. So hopefully this one works well. Do you know what? Even if it's not fantastic, this is what you've got. So I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Vanessa because she's so knowledgeable. And I thought there was some great information there and some of it I will be taking on board. Um, and I had... L- a whole list of topics that I wanted to cover and I think we covered most of them. So hopefully you enjoyed this episode too. And maybe if you did, you could leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and and we'll read it out next time we record an intro. As you can probably gather, I'm not one for tracking macros. I've done it occasionally just to make sure I'm on track with my carbs and keeping them fairly low, but I've never done it consistently and I sometimes think I'm going to do it and I manage half a day and then the next half of the day I don't manage. So I'm never consistent. But since talking with Vanessa, I think once I'm back from my holiday in June, so not this one, the next one, um, I'm going to spend some time and try and track and make sure I'm getting enough protein. And I know Dr. Baslington, who I use um, for keeping healthy and making sure I'm on track, will be pleased about that because he's always telling me to to track and to eat more protein. So I'm going to really make sure that I do that now. I have been incorporating some leaner meats in my diet but I'm really going to try and focus on getting some more leaner meats. And then what I'm going to have to do is stop myself from adding butter because I tend to add butter to everything. So I really need to cut back on the fat and just have the higher protein. So this is going to be interesting. Um, My journal that I'm creating should be out in a couple of months. So maybe I'll be able to try the journal and with some of these new goals that I'm going to set myself so I'll let you know how I go if not here then definitely in the newsletter so if you want to sign up to the newsletter just go to fabulouslyketo.com and there on the front page you can sign up for the newsletter and I think I'm going to start incorporating some protein sparing modified fast days instead of the water fast so I'm going to see how that goes as well So um, watch this space. So if you're looking for the show notes, they can be found at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 087. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulouslyketo. And you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? 
Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.